Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. As you can see on the screen behind me, I've got my Bible open up to the book of Romans, and we're going to be in the 14th chapter this morning. Romans chapter 14 will be there exclusively uh, during this part of our worship, and so let's just get a Bible out and just lay it right there in Romans chapter 14. We will work in these 23 verses uh, for the next few minutes in the Word of God. It is great to see everybody this morning. It is a kind of an overcasty Lord's Day morning, but uh, we're glad to be able to be here and in the safety and in the comfort of, of a nice building like this, and we can focus our minds and our hearts together upon God and upon God's things. We're so delighted that you're here, especially if you're visiting with us. You're our honored guest, and we hope that you're finding everything to be done today decently and in order so that you're able to leave here and say God truly is among them. In Romans the 14th chapter, I'm reading here in verse number 1 as we continue our preaching theme for 2021, thinking about the gospel according to Romans. What does Paul say here that will help us as Christians and to understand the gospel? Romans 14 verse 1, Paul says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. Imagine, if you will, living back during the days of the Old West. And imagine walking into a general store to buy yourself some, some fabric or some material. Peace goods is what they would call it. And so you're looking through all the different fabrics. You're looking at all the different textures and patterns that they have available. And finally you find the one that you want. And so you then take that fabric up to the counter where the clerk is standing. And there you find on the counter a row of brass each one carefully hammered into the countertop at specific intervals apart. This is actually what the shopkeeper is going to use to measure out that fabric. And this, of course, is the point where you're going to have to be absolutely certain that this is the fabric that you want because once the fabric's cut, the deal is done. And so the material, after it's been measured by the clerk, maybe the clerk then says to you, all right, it's time to get down to brass tacks. That expression, that phrase about brass tacks, over time, it came to mean, this is it. This is it. Let's get to the point of the matter. In Romans the 14th chapter, that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, this is it. This is the moment. This is where Paul has been headed all along in this great epistle. For 13 chapters now, Paul has talked about how everyone in the church at Rome, they all were essentially the same. They were all sinners. They were all saved by faith. They all obeyed the gospel and became Christians in the exact same way. Everything that he's tried to say to these Jews and these Gentiles about how they all fit together in God's plan, how they needed as a result of that to stop looking down their nose at one another and fussing and fighting all the time, all of that has been leading to this moment. And so in Romans 14 verse 1, Paul essentially says... It's time to get down to those brass tacks. It's time to talk specifically about the issues that are causing division in that congregation. And most importantly, it's time to talk about how the gospel makes it possible for us to get along. That's one of the requirements of the gospel is that we would get along. This is arguably the most important chapter in Paul's great epistle. And yet, even as I say that, it is also one of, if not the most contentious chapters in all of the Word of God. 
All kinds of misunderstandings have come out of Romans 14. All kinds of misuses of Romans 14 have abounded. Lots of arguments and fussing about Romans 14. All of that for a chapter that ironically is designed to solve fussing and fighting and arguing and division. But I'd say this. Despite all of those problems that people have about Romans 14 and all the misunderstandings with it, I'd say this, that's not Paul's fault. And that's not the Bible's fault. Which means that you and I, we need to step into that church at Rome in the first century. And we need to give very careful attention to what Paul is trying to say so that you and I can understand the timeless principles that will help us here in the 21st century to get along and to be the body of Christ as the Lord would have us to be. Now, in order for that to happen, I think it is important that we need to highlight just a few key ideas. Some important ideas right here at the jumping off point so that we will understand what's going on and what's not going on in Romans the 14th chapter. First and foremost, we do need to understand that Paul in this chapter, he is discussing matters of indifference to the Lord. That's a vitally important thing for us to understand. He's talking about matters of, verse 1, matters of opinion. This passage, you need to just kind of get this squared away in your mind right now because I'm not going to keep repeating it throughout the sermon. This passage does not deal with matters of right and wrong, matters of sin and salvation, matters that God has clearly legislated about His will one way or the other in other parts of the New Testament. That's not what this chapter is about. This chapter is about... Personal convictions, personal scruples, personal opinions. We all have them. Somebody maybe says, well, Josh, how do you know? How can you be so certain that that's what this chapter is about? Lots of folks have tried to wedge all kinds of issues into Romans 14. How do you know this is an opinion chapter? Well, aside from what we just read in verse 1, which I think clearly makes it known that Paul's talking about opinions, we know that furthermore just because of how this chapter reads. It just reads differently from other things in the Bible. You know, whenever Paul needs to address a matter of right and wrong, something that is threatening the gospel, something that is endangering people's souls, Paul just always takes an entirely different tone in those places than he does here in Romans 14. I'm thinking, for example, about the book of Galatians. Just read the opening couple of paragraphs in Galatians. Paul, by like the second paragraph of Galatians chapter 1, he is shouting and hollering and he just gets louder from there. Why? Because what's going on in the churches at Galatia is false teaching. And it was endangering people's souls. And that needed to be corrected. That was a salvation matter for which there could be no compromise. But Romans 14? Totally different. We're not talking about salvation things here. In Romans 14, as we read what Paul says, you'll just notice Paul is content for everybody here in this circumstance to just remain exactly where they are. No one in Romans 14 is ordered to change their position or change their opinion. Paul does not say, hey, weak brethren, you're wrong, you need to get it straightened up. Or, hey, strong brethren, you're wrong, you need to get it straightened up. That's not what Paul's going to say here. In fact, what we're going to see in verses 3 and 4, if I can get ahead of myself, is that God actually accepts both of them the weak and the strong. And that's because the issues that are under discussion in this chapter are matters of indifference to God, non-essentials, matters where we have some individual liberty to decide about. I need you to understand that. This is not a chapter 
about right and wrong. I may reiterate that one more time later, but I'm kind of just setting that down right here at the beginning. Somebody says, all right, if this is talking about matters of indifference, well, well, well what kind of matters would that be? I mean, well, what's an example of that kind? What would be a matter of liberty? Well, for Paul, the consummate example of that is always the matter of eating. The matter of what kinds of foods are a person allowed to eat? What kind of dietary restrictions might somebody have some personal convictions about? You need to remember that to the Jews, eating was a really big deal. All the dietary restrictions that existed back in the law of Moses, was this food prepared? Was it clean? Is it kosher? Where did this food come from? What happened to this before it arrived here on my plate? That kind of thing always mattered to the Jews and as a result they were very, very careful about the food that they ate and how they dealt with all that. I'm thinking about Peter in Acts chapter 10. This is several years into the age of the church. Even Peter at that point is saying when he sees that vision from heaven with the animals being let down in the blanket, even Peter says, Oh Lord, no, 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 no. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. You see, that was a big deal even to Jews who had obeyed the gospel and become Christians. On top of that, in that same congregation, you've also got former pagans, the Gentile brethren. And they're now Christians. And these are the folks who used to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Meat that had been purchased maybe down at the idol temple. Things that were involved in idolatrous worship practices. And so now those brethren and these Jewish brethren, they're all lumped together in this one congregation and they're trying to be the church. And so you've got just a smorgasbord of differing opinions about food and what's right to eat and what's not right to eat. Maybe one brother over here says, you know what, my head is telling me that I can eat that, but, but my heart is kind of telling me I can't eat that. While the other brother over here is saying, well, pff, we have liberty in Christ. We can eat anything that we want. It doesn't matter what you eat. Which then leads me to say something about the weak brethren and the strong brethren. Who in this text are the weak brethren? Who exactly are these folks? You know, whenever we use that expression, oh, he's a weak Christian, what do we mean by that? What we usually mean is we mean, oh, he's not really committed to the Lord. His dedication to Jesus and to the local church, it's, it's really kind of lacking. Maybe he's kind of lax in his attendance or maybe he struggles with certain temptations. That's what we mean by that. But the term weak here in Romans 14 does not mean that. When Paul talks here in verse 1 about those who are weak in faith, he's talking here about brethren who have an incomplete knowledge of the gospel. Their dedication to the Lord, that, that's not in question. In fact, these weak brethren, they are very scrupulous. They are very zealous. They are very conservative and very careful. They just lack a fuller understanding of what the gospel will allow them to do. Like, for example whether or not you can eat certain foods. This is a person who just isn't totally sure that they can be involved in certain activities because their background, something in their history is telling them, you shouldn't do that, you can't do that. They maybe got a voice in their mind that's making them feel guilty. Hey, that's sinful, don't do that, stay away from that. And while we do not know everything about the specific issues that were plaguing the church at Rome, it does seem as if the weak Christians are probably those who are continuing to operate under the influence of their Jewish upbringing. And as a result, that was causing them to have some lingering doubts in their minds, and that, of course, is the impetus for the conflict and the troubles in the congregation. And so, with those kind of three big ideas kind of tucked away in our minds, with that understanding, 
I think we can now kind of approach Romans 14 and we can understand what Paul's going for here. Because what Paul's going to say in these first 12 verses to this church that is so divided over all these matters of opinion, matters that are of indifference to God, what Paul's going to say to these brethren is, is he's going to say, stop it. Stop all the judging. Stop judging each other over these things. Verse 1 again. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. The New American Standard, I think, is really on point here in verse 1. When it says, Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That's it. That is, hey, let's not welcome each other, but then as soon as we welcome each other, we're going to do that so that we can have a big fuss. Hey, hey, won't you come over here? Yeah, yeah, good to have you. Hey, won't you come over here? Let's let's sit down. Let's talk about this. And then we're going to jump on that, brother. We're not going to do that. Paul says that's not the way of Christ. Instead, verse 2, what's he say? He says one person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Maybe right here's a good place for me to stop and to make sure that we're all speaking the same language as Paul in this passage. When Paul talks here about faith, or when he uses the word believe here, he's not talking about the faith. He's not talking about like believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. No, he's talking about that individual's understanding. He's talking about their personal conviction about this matter. He's talking about what that person's conscience will allow them to do. And it is, of course, the matter of eating that really comes to the forefront here in verse 3, or excuse me, in verse 2. Perhaps it was that the Jewish Christians in that church were really just very nervous about eating the meat that was available to them at that time. Paul, of course, will address something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10. While the Gentile Christians in that church, it seems as if maybe they had, well, they just didn't have any, have any qualms about that at all. Didn't have any problems with their conscience or their mind telling them. Didn't matter to them where the food came from. They're going to eat it. And what Paul observes is he observes that that actually is just a recipe for a whole lot of judging to go on. There's not just judging going on on one side. No, there's judging going on on both sides. Verse 3. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. There's one side of judging. Then look at the other side. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Look at this. For God has welcomed him. What you got is you got brethren with strong opinions on both sides of this issue. And as a result, everybody is judging everybody in that church. The folks who were abstaining were saying to themselves, or maybe saying out loud, I I can't believe you're eating that. You can't be eating that. That was offered to an idol. While the folks who were abstaining were looking at the, or excuse me, the folks who were not abstaining were looking at the ones who were abstaining and saying, I can't believe you won't eat this. We have liberty in Christ. Come on, get with the program. You can eat anything that you want. So everybody's judging everybody. Yet look at what Paul says there in verse 3. He says, God has welcomed him. Point. God accepts everybody in this situation. Both the abstainer and the one who is eating. Why? Because this is a matter of indifference to God. This doesn't concern God. This is not a salvation thing. This is a matter of personal opinion and God doesn't care one way or the other. Which means then that if God is not judging people on the basis of eating this or abstaining from that, then, well, then neither should anybody else. Neither should these brethren be doing that judging, and neither should you or I. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The Joshua Kibben South Central Kentucky translation of verse 4 says, Mind your own beeswax. That's what verse 4 says. This brother that you're trying to push around and boss around and trying to make him do exactly as you do, he's not your servant. He doesn't belong to you. He's God's servant. He belongs to God. And so you don't need to be worried about what he does or what his opinion is. You don't need to be worried about what he doesn't do and the choices that he makes on those things. That person will answer to his master just like you'll answer to your master. Maybe the practical point just from these first four verses is that if Christians do happen to see things differently on matters of personal liberty, then what that means is that means we need to leave each other alone about that. We do. If God is okay with what my brother or sister is doing, even if what they're doing is a different decision that I would make about that, about that particular liberty, well, if God is okay with them, then I need to be okay with them too. That doesn't mean that I need to like what they're doing. It doesn't need to mean that I need to start doing what they're doing. It just means I need to be okay with that. In fact, Paul even identifies another kind of touchy issue that they maybe were dealing with in verse 5. Paul speaks here about the observance of certain days. I'm reading in verse 5 and 6 now. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. God. I think probably Paul is expanding here on the eating theme. That's what he's talking about. And I think maybe the days that he's referencing here, I think he's probably talking about fasting days. He may have some other days, other special observance of holidays and things in mind. But I think kind of contextually, if we want to kind of keep everything together, he's been talking about food. And he talks here in verse 6 about abstaining. I think he might be talking here about, about fasting. The Jews, of course, were required to keep several fast days under the old law. And once again, what's Paul say about that? Paul is content to say, hey, some people are going to do that and some people are not going to do that. And you know what? Either way you choose about that, it's okay. However, Paul does give a really important caveat. Did you notice that in verse 5? Look at the end of verse 5. Paul says, whatever you decide about that, each one needs to be fully convinced in his own mind. Whatever your conviction, whatever the opinion thing that we're talking about, whatever it is that that may be, it needs to be a thoughtful decision that honors God. Don't just do some kind of a knee-jerk, well, well, I do this because this is what I've always done. Don't settle for a, well, the reason I believe this is because this is what my parents believe or this is what my grandpa told me. No. No, Paul says you need to think through that issue for yourself. You need to be fully persuaded in your own mind. You need to decide what you believe is right about that. And then you need to operate in accordance with your conscience. If you're going to eat, do it to the glory of God. And if you're going to abstain, hey, do that to the glory of God. In fact, watch how many times Paul uses the word Lord in these verses. More than a half a dozen times, Paul stresses the Lord. I think Paul is pressing here the idea that what matters the very most is that all of us are responsible to the Lord. Verse 7 now. Paul says, verse 7, he says, For none of us lives to himself, 
and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What Paul wants these brethren to understand is that no matter what you do, whether we're talking about this eating thing, whether we're talking about this observance of days thing, fill in the blank with whatever you want. Paul says we're doing that to the Lord, which means that means that none of us are in any position at all to judge the choices on matters of liberty. We're not at liberty to judge the choices of our brethren. The Lord, the Lord will take care of that. He is uniquely qualified to take care of that. In fact, Paul really seals that idea in verse 9 when he says there, For to this end Christ died and and lived again that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Let me ask you a question. Who in the church at Rome died for and then rose for the sins of the people in that congregation? Who in the church at Rome did that? Let me bring that forward 2,000 years. Who here in the church at Lakeside has died, rose from the grave, triumphed over sin and over death and over the devil? Who here has done that? Answer, nobody. None of us have done that. Only Jesus has done that. And as a result, that makes Him the Lord. And He has the claim to that. He is the only one who is in a position to do any kind of judging That's what makes Him the Lord. He's the judge. Verse 10, Paul says in verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you pass, or excuse me, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, if there was any confusion at all over who has the authority to do the judging around here, Paul really settles that right here by quoting from Scripture. The quotation here is from Isaiah chapter 45 and in verse 23. And the point really is clear as he quotes from that passage. Everybody's going to have to answer to God. Everybody will answer to God for the choices and the decisions they have made and everybody at that time will be judged by Him. He'll be the one to administer judgment. Which means we need to try to stop usurping and getting into God's position in God's place. We need to stop this business of binding our own rules and our own personal standards on others. That's the kind of thing that destroys the unity of the church. And in fact, in light of the verses that we just read there in verses 10, 11, and 12, I would suggest to you also that it also endangers and makes possible the fact that we might destroy our own souls if we're doing that. Now I want to make clear, I've said, and I think Paul said many times in this passage, stop the judging. I, I want to stop right here and make clear, there is a time to judge. There is a time to confront. If it's a matter of truth and error, judgment needs to take place. If somebody comes along and says, hey, you can be saved without being baptized. Okay, we need to get in there. We need to say something about that. Hold, hold on, hold your horse. Bible says differently about that. If it's a matter of right and wrong, somebody comes along and says, hey, I think homosexuality is okay with God. I think you can go to heaven and you can be a homosexual and practice that lifestyle and it's no big deal to the Lord. Hey, whoa, hold on a second. We need to look at the Word of God about that again. 
We need to do some judging. We need to do some confrontation about that. But I'll say one more time. Those are not the things that Romans 14 is talking about. Romans 14 is talking about those matters of opinion, those matters of personal conviction. And so Paul says again and again and again, stop the judging. It's not enough to just merely tolerate all those who are weak. Instead, we need to stop judging and we need to think about our attitudes and how it is that we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in many ways, what Paul says in these first 12 verses, I think in a lot of ways that really is sufficient. It really is more than enough to correct the the problems and the tensions that existed in that congregation. But Paul actually doesn't stop there. He wants to say a little bit more. And specifically, he wants to say some words now to the strong brethren. Again, it's not enough just to tolerate those weak brethren. No, what Paul's going to say here in the second half of the chapter is strong brethren, strong brethren, you need to step it up. You strong brethren, you have some room to maneuver because of your liberties and your choices. And so as a result, you need to be more mindful of your weak brethren. You need to be thinking about ways that you can help them. Just because you can eat doesn't mean that you always should. You can actually choose to not do that. You can choose to forego that liberty. You've got some wiggle room here, whereas the weak brother, he didn't really have a whole lot of liberty. He's kind of straight-jacketed in. He doesn't have another option for him. If he chooses the other option, he's going to violate his conscience. And he's going to end up being in sin. But you strong brethren, you do have some latitude. You've got some room to maneuver, and so you need to use that latitude in order to bring about unity. Pick up then in verse 13. Verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. There's actually a little bit of a play on words there in verse 13. In the Greek, if you were reading that, it says, Stop the judging... But then he goes on to say, make this judgment, when he talks there about decisions and deciding. That is, if you like judging so much, well, here's a judgment you can make. Here's a decision you can make. That is, don't cause a brother to stumble. That would be a really good judgment to make. And what Paul says to the strong here is that the strong need to be ready to give up what they may have a right to. They need to be ready to forego their liberties. Why? so that they don't lead a weak brother into sin. And I need to really stress and emphasize that it is sin that we're talking about here, right? That's what Paul means when he talks here about stumbling blocks. When you drop down to verse 21, some translations use the word offend. We read those words offend, and I'm afraid sometimes what we think is we think that's talking about, oh, you you, you hurt my feelings. You told a joke about how redheads are goofy, and that offended me. That's not what Paul's talking about here when he talks about offenses. That's not what he means when he talks about stumbling blocks and stumbling. He's not talking about feelings. He's talking about doing something, saying something, acting in such a way that leads a brother or sister into sin. Somebody says, well, 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 how could that possibly happen? How, How could a strong brother lead a weak brother into sin? What could possibly make that so? Well, what if the strong brother encouraged the weak brother? to eat that meat that he doesn't feel like he can? What if that strong brother maybe just kind of regularly, maybe even not in a real overt way, but in subtle ways, just kind of continues to ridicule and jab that brother 
who doesn't, once again, doesn't feel like he can eat that meat, but he's just kind of always poking him about that. Until finally that weak brother gives in and does that, and in so doing, he violates his conscience. I think that's the kind of stumbling block that Paul has in mind here. Verse 14. Verse 14, Paul continues on when he says, I know and I am persuaded that in the Lord Jesus nothing is unclean in itself. I understand that. But it is unclean for anybody who thinks it's unclean. There's some folks who don't have that understanding and knowledge. Verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. And so let's just imagine a scenario. Here's this brother that I've invited over to my house for dinner. And I set him down at my dinner table and I then plop in front of him a big old plate with a big old steak on it. And it's a big, nice-looking, juicy steak. And it's a steak that I just happened to this past week. I picked it up down at the Idol Meat Market. They was running a two-for-one special down at the Zeus Temple. So I picked me up a whole bunch of steaks that day. And we're having steak tonight. I threw that thing on the grill, lathered that up with all kinds of steak sauce. I put that in front of my brother and I said, Hey, eat up, brother. He's now looking at that meat. He's kind of examining it. He's kind of nervous about that. He's never eaten something like that before. And maybe he eventually looks up at me and makes eye contact with me. And I then start to kind of understand what's going on. And so I start giving him a hard time about that. Well, come on, it's a good piece of meat. Come on, don't don't tell me I'm going to invite you over my house, extend hospitality, and then you're not going to eat the food I put in front of you. Come on, you're not going to eat what I fixed you? Come on, we know. You know. You know there's nothing wrong with that meat. There's nothing unclean about it. We're giving thanks to God for it. That's the most important thing. Come on, don't be like those other weak in faith people in the congregation. You can do better than that. So maybe then very reluctantly, he picks up his knife and his fork and he begins to cut it. He puts a piece in his mouth and you can just see it on his face. He has violated his own conscience. And what have I done? What role have I played in that? Well, I think the role I've played in that is verse 15. I have destroyed my brother for whom Christ died. That's your brother. Paul says, don't don't do that to your brother. That's your family. This is the family of God. You don't do that kind of thing to your family. And furthermore, you don't do that. Verse 16, don't as well, verse 16, don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. In other words, don't let something that's a good thing, like eating. Anybody here not think that eating is a good thing? I'm for it. I'm in favor. Eating is a very great thing. But don't let a good thing be turned into a bad thing. Paul expects that instead of the strong just exercising their rights in a way that ends up leading to problems and division, instead the strong is going to say, I'm willing to give up some things. I'm willing to give up my own liberties in order to help you, my brother, my sister, in your walk with the Lord. And one of the reasons I'm particularly going to do that is because we don't want outsiders to think evil of the Lord and of the Lord's kingdom and of the Lord's church. I think that's partially in view here in verse 16 when he talks about being thought evil of, being spoken evil of. You know, what kind of message does it send to non-Christians when they look over at Christians and they see us running roughshod over one another, not really being considerate of each other and of each other's personal convictions? What message does that send to a non-Christian? It sends the message to them that, you know what? I don't want anything to do with that. 
I'm not interested in that. I don't want to be a part of something where people don't consider one another. Why would I ever want to be involved in that? You and I must never do things that would contribute to that kind of mindset where the kingdom of God is being allowed to be spoken evil of in that way. And so Paul says in verse 17, because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That... That's what we want the kingdom of God to be known for, isn't it? That we are the people who do what's right. We're doing what's right in the sight of God. We're the people who have peace. We're the people who have joy. Why? Because we have love and concern for one another. That's the message that we want to send to the world. That's what we want them to see. Even more importantly, that's what we want God to see. Verse 18, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. We'll, also, we'll get the approval of men when we conduct ourselves appropriately. But more importantly, we'll get the approval of God. Verse 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Instead of always doing what I want to do or what I think I have the right to do all the time, I'm going to take the steps that will help to bring about peace. The things that will help bring about mutual upbuilding. In fact, notice there the term upbuilding, as the ESV renders that. Your translation may say the word edification. Just flip that word inside out. It just means to build up. Now think about how that stands in stark contrast to the word that he used back in verse 15. The word destroy, demolish. Think about a wrecking ball that just comes in and just tears everything down. We're not in the business of tearing down. We're in the business of building up. In fact, Paul uses that word destroy again in the very next verse, verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Can I retranslate that statement? Paul is saying, stop putting dynamite in the body of Christ over things that don't really matter. How many church splits and divisions and church fusses have occurred? over legitimate, meaty, substantive, doctrinal issues. I would say very few in comparison to what most churches split over. Because most of the time what we're fussing and fighting over is over stuff that doesn't really matter. Things that in the grand scheme isn't going to matter, isn't going to matter at all. And so Paul says, verse 20, he continues on. In verse 20 he says, Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good then not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So Paul's still talking to the strong brethren. Strong brethren, hey, you know some things. Maybe you're a little further ahead in the game. You've got some knowledge. But just because you know that you have the liberty to do some things and it doesn't affect your conscience, that doesn't mean that you just need to always do it. And I think this is, once again, kind of ties back to chapter 12, the kind of the thesis statement for these last several chapters. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is part of the transformed mind. This is how we think differently than people in the world. People in the world have a me-first mentality. It's about getting my rights, doing what I want to do, what makes me feel good. It's not the way of Christ. Transformed thinking says, I'm thinking of others first. I'm putting their needs above my own. Verse 22, Paul says, verse 22, the faith that you have, what you're convicted about, you keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. All right, maybe you've, maybe you've been able to figure some things out. And you're, you're very confident in your mind that, hey, you can eat that meat. And your conscience is totally clear about that. Well, the first thing Paul says, he says, hey, good for you. That's great for you. Blessed is the man who's come to that point. But what he says is, he says, you don't need to go rubbing that in other people's faces. You don't need to go announcing that to everybody in the world. You don't need to go around berating your brethren because they don't think or do the exact same way as you do. What Paul says in verse 22 is he says, you do what you believe is right about that. But you keep that to yourself. You keep that to yourself. In fact, did you notice as well that Paul doesn't even say either that the strong brethren need to go and try to, need to, try to somehow convert the weak brethren. Hey, you need to get over there and try to teach them out of their weakness. Paul didn't say that. Both, remember back at the beginning of the chapter, both are accepted by God. What we need to do is we need to just have respect for one another's convictions. And so verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. But the eating, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is... It's sin. So here's that idea once again of violating one's conscience. You know, the conscience has been given to us, been given to every person by God. God's planted that within us, and it is given to us to help guide us throughout this life. Now, I want to be clear, the conscience is not a perfect guide, but it is a helpful guide. Whenever it's used properly, whenever it's been trained properly, it can really help us in our walk with the Lord. Which means then that we don't want to damage the conscience. And probably in the context here of Romans 14, we don't want to cause a brother or a sister to damage their conscience because that could lead, that could lead verse 23, to sin. Now the truth is, Paul's actually not done talking about this subject. He's not done talking to the strong. If you're able to disregard the very terrible chapter divisions here in your Bible, you may notice in the very next verse, chapter 15, verse 1, Paul's still talking to the strong. And for the first 13 verses of chapter 13, he's going to continue this very same train of thought. Now, I'm going to refrain from getting into chapter 15 right now. I really, really want to, but I'm going to exercise some self-control, and tonight we'll talk about chapter 15. But I do want you to make a mental note right now that Paul's not done speaking about the recipe for how a church can get along in Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can conclude, though, by kind of taking all that we've learned here from Romans 14 and see if I can make a couple of very direct and very personal implications from this important passage. First and foremost, I need to say that this chapter, this chapter teaches that I need to have the humility to acknowledge that when we're talking about a matter of liberty, a matter of personal judgment, I need to be ready to acknowledge that I could be wrong about this issue. When you think about it here in Romans 14. There are two sides to this eating meat issue. And one of those sides is wrong. Those brethren who were abstaining from the meat, they were just absolutely convinced and certain in their minds that the only way you could be right with God, the only way you could be holy, the only way that you could really please the Lord is to abstain from that food. But they were wrong about that. In fact, they were dead wrong about that. And I'm afraid that what happens too often is that we get ourselves on top of some position, whatever the, the subject may be, and we get on top of that and we camp there and we start shouting from there, 
and we start waving our finger at our brethren from up on top of that high holy hill and we never at any point ever consider, you know what? Maybe my position is wrong. We never consider, hmm, maybe I'm the weak brother here. We never think about that. We never stop and open up our eyes to the possibility that I need to sit down and study the Word because I could be wrong about that matter. Because the truth of the matter is, when everybody in a congregation is convinced that they are 100% correct and they won't ever consider the possibility that they are wrong, you know what that's going to lead to? That's going to lead to very little listening, which will probably lead to very little patience. And that, of course, is going to lead to very little unity in the body. Which means, secondly, that Romans 14, it does teach that Scripture allows for some differences between brethren. Now that sounds almost contradictory. Hey, we're trying to have unity, but the Bible's saying we can have differences. Well, that's exactly what the Bible is saying. Again, Paul is content to say that the folks who can't eat, hey, you can stay in the can't-eat camp. Paul does not say, strong brethren, you need to get over there and you need to have a Bible study with those folks and teach them how they can eat that meat. That's not what Paul says. Paul is content to leave them right where they are. And maybe you and I, maybe you and I need to take some cues about that. Instead of us thinking we need to somehow convert everybody else to our way of thinking on things, we need to just slow down a bit. Maybe instead of getting judgmental over the brother who doesn't ever wear a tie to church on Sunday. Or instead of making fun of that sister who chooses to wear the head covering during worship services. Or instead of looking down on the brother whose conscience will not allow him to do work on a Saturday. Or instead of trying to make that young person feel guilty because they're reading from a translation of the Bible that I don't read from. What I need to do is I need to mind my own business. And I need to let others grow at their own rate. And I need to let people be able to work out their own convictions as we each respect each other's conscience. The Bible does allow for us to have some differing opinions on those things because the truth of the matter is, thirdly and finally this morning, what I think and what my conscience says, that is not the standard by which everyone else must abide. In fact, I'll just say it. If unity depended on everybody seeing everything in matters of judgment exactly as I do, then we would never have unity. Think about how many people we have here in this congregation. In fact, I don't even think you could even find one person in this congregation who would match up exactly with the way that I feel and the convictions that I have about everything. I, for example, it's very well known, I think yard work is evil. I I think mowing grass is from the devil. But you know what? If I tried to press that on everybody else here at Lakeside, that's going to cause some problems. Mark Weaver runs a business based on yard work. He makes a living off of that. You may have strong convictions about something else. You may have strong convictions about whether or not your child can go to public school versus homeschool. You may have strong convictions about whether or not women can wear slacks out in public. You may have strong convictions about vaccinations and all that goes along with that. And you know what? All those convictions are totally okay. It's fine for you to have those convictions. But what you think about those things is not the standard. What I think about those things is not the standard. What you or I have just always thought was the right thing on that, that's not the standard. What maybe our grandparents did and the people that we thought an awful lot of at one time, what they did, that's not the standard. What's the standard? 
The standard is the B-I-B-L-E. It is the objective Word of God, the Bible. And if it's a matter that all of us do need to think the same way about, if all of us need to have the same mind about, then guess what? The Bible will tell us. The Bible will make that clear. God is very good at communicating through His Word what it is that we all need to believe and we all need to accept and we all need to practice and we all need to teach. God will tell us that. But in the absence of some book, chapter, and verse teaching, in the absence of a direct command or statement, in the absence of an apostolic example to go by, in the, example, in, the, in the absence even of a necessary conclusion, you and I are going to need to accept and understand that our think-sos and our brilliant ideas on things, it's not the same as the authoritative Word of God, which means we cannot bind those things on others. In fact, as I step back and look at Romans 14, maybe the most important passage in the whole chapter is right there in the very middle, in verse 12. When Paul says there that one day, you and I, we will all give an account of ourselves to the Lord. I'm not the standard. I'm not the judge. But one day each and every one of us is going to give an answer to the one who is the judge. And so the question is, how have I conducted myself while I've been here on His earth? How have I contributed to the cause of unity within His church? Did I help to build up? Or was I always tearing down? Did I help pursue the things that make for peace with my brethren? Or did I end up just creating stumbling block after stumbling block for my brethren? Paul in Romans 14, he gets down to the brass tacks, doesn't he? And he challenges all of us in a direct and powerful way to think about how it is that we are living right now in view and in light of the day and the moment when we all, verse 10, will stand before the judgment seat of God. Where do you think you'll be standing when that day comes? Where are you going to be when we all stand before the judgment seat of the Lord? In fact, let's just think even more definitively about that. If, if today happened to be that day, where do you think you'll be standing? Do you think you'll be summoned to the right hand of the throne of God? Or do you think you'll be standing and sent over to the left hand of the throne of God? How you answer that question, I think really ought to determine what you do here in the next mm, 60 seconds or so. Because if you recognize, I'd be summoned to the left, and that's not where I want to be, then what that means is, is that means that you have an opportunity right now to change everything. You have an opportunity to make a decision that will literally change your eternity. You have an opportunity right now to be in a right relationship with God through your faith and obedience to the gospel. If you're not a Christian, we would love very much this morning to assist you in confessing the name of Jesus as God's Son and being buried with Him in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins. If you are a Christian but you've not been living as you should, brother or sister, maybe some of the issues in Romans 14 about attitudes and things of that nature, maybe you realize you've fallen short in that. You need to correct course as well. Repent, ask God for His forgiveness. If we can assist anybody today in serving the Lord or serving Him in a better way so that we can be ready for the moment when we stand before the judgment seat of God, then we implore you to come through the words of this song. Make your way to the front right now while we stand and while we sing.